Well, do take your Bibles and let's turn together to Isaiah 7. We're going to be running through from chapter 7, 18 through to chapter 10, 8, sorry, 7, 7, 18 through 8, 10. Turn back the clock nearly 800 years before Christ and things don't look very promising in the land of promise. The prophet Isaiah has uh, found the nation in a bit of a state. First of all, Israel had divided 200 years before with 10 tribes in the north, two tribes left in the south, dominated by Judah, the 10 in the north, dominated by Ephraim. And in those 200 years, they'd gone in their separate ways. Now the house of David is confined to one tribe in one part of what was Israel, of what had been greater Israel. The people to the north now sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes Israel, we might call them northern Israel to distinguish them, have become an independent nation, antagonistic towards the house of David, antagonistic towards Judah, and for the last little while, northern Israel, Ephraim, has been in a political alliance with Syria, and together this pair have been worrying little Judah to the south. Little Judah is afraid. Little Judah is very afraid. King Ahaz, its king, as we have discovered at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 7, is terrified of what they will do next, these pair, this pair to the north. And out of fear, motivated by fear, driven by fear of the future, King Ahaz has a plan, a resolution, a big idea. He will Look east and north towards the rising power of Assyria, and he will ask Assyria to be his savior and his nation's savior and rescue her. Rescue her. And Isaiah has confronted the king. Chapter 7, the first part, confronted the king with this. Is it going to be driven by fear or by faith? That was the big issue. In fact, that's the issue for the next several chapters. Fear or faith? Put your trust in God. Put your trust in Assyria. Put your God, trust in God that you cannot see, or in Assyria, a power that you can see. And Ahaz has made his choice. He has put his trust in Assyria. And that's the issue, though, that Isaiah is addressing, and he has a word for the king. And we'll see what that word is. In that the Lord said to me, the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, the Lord spoke to me again. This is the word of God through his servant Isaiah to the people of God, to what is left of them, to what is left of those who give their allegiance to the house of David. Here is God's word, first of all, about the future. God's word about the future. Chapter 7, verses 18 to 25. And what is being spelled out here are the ramifications of a decision of unfaith, of unbelief. What happens when you choose human wisdom above faith? What happens when you choose to find salvation somewhere else other than in God? What happens 
when you look to an earthly power and its ruler and king, rather than to the king, Yahweh the Almighty, that Isaiah has seen in chapter 6. The prophet is spelling it out. Ahaz's unbelief has set in in force or in motion forces that will affect the future. And these forces, each of these forces, is described in these verses. And the oracles that Isaiah delivers to the king and to the people, these oracles are Yahweh-driven. You notice this? They begin with the words, in that day, the Lord. In that day, the Lord. In other words, here is God, and God is acting, and God is acting to reveal His sovereign will for His people. And what God is about to do will happen in real time, in the real world, as a real effect of what unbelief does. What unbelief does when we let it control the way we think and the way we act. Four pictures. Picture number one, the fly and the bee, verses 18 and 19. Yahweh will send Assyria against his people, northern Israel and Judah. Egypt and Assyria are mentioned here. Egypt was uh, always wanting to be a power, had been a great power. Its 25th dynasty, or dynasty, just to translate that for you, uh, is uh, described as more of an annoyance than a serious danger, a fly that you swat away. Uh, The real threat comes from Assyria. Assyria's mountains were famous for their bees. Whistling was a way in which you disturbed the bees and got them to go down into the fields to get pollen. And of course, the bees are dangerous because bees sting. And that's the point that God is going to make to these people, that they're looking towards Assyria, and they're asking Assyria to come and help them. Guess what? God has whistled. Assyria will come, but they will come with a sting in their tail. Look at the second picture, verse 20. In that day, the Lord will judge the land. Not just the people, but the land will be judged by God. In that day, listen, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river. That's the Euphrates. And here the king of Assyria is mentioned specifically. Here's Isaiah getting down to brass tacks. He says, look, it's the king of Assyria you're looking to. It's the king of Assyria who will come and he'll shave your head and uh, your legs, and your beard, and he'll shave your private parts. He will totally humiliate, totally humiliate the people and the land of Judah and the people of Judah. The action of Assyria will be a humiliating action. And in many ways, all they'll do really is fulfill what the king Ahaz had asked the king of Assyria to do. He sent a little note to him and said, look, if We'd like you to come and be our rescuer down here. It's in your political interest to do that. Come and help us. And the king of Judah said to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Isaiah says, that's what you wanted. That's what you will become. Servile, a servant, a slave to the king of Assyria. Then in verses 21 and 22, A third picture, the cow and the sheep. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. 
In other words, the great day of the large cattle ranches will have come to an end. The great day of the huge industrial farming project that had made Judah so successful and even northern Israel so successful will come to an end. Now we'll be down to basic stuff. Now we'll be down to each individual family with whatever they have to make their way in the world and to get by. It is a picture of severely straightened circumstances. Gone are the luxuries of life. Now it's down to the basics, curds and honey. And then the fourth picture. The fourth picture is of a desolated landscape. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a a thousand shekels of silver, there will be briars and thorns. There will come to all the land briars and thorns. You will come, nobody will come here for fear of briars and thorns. In other words, here is an impoverished landscape, a barren land. The promised land has become a cursed land. The goodly land, overflowing with milk and honey, has become a land of thorns and briars. Desert. Weeds rather than productive fruit. This is the picture that Isaiah paints. And you see, this is what Isaiah says is the effect of misplaced confidence. Here is the house of Judah to which has been given all the promises of God. And yet here is the house of Judah looking to other alliances and reliances and putting all its investments in something other than God Himself. And says the prophet, this is where it's going to end and it's not going to be very pretty. It's going to end in shame, in barrenness, in destruction, in damage. It's going to end in judgment. Now, how does this apply to us today? God's people today aren't a nation state as the people of God were in Ahaz's time. And yet, Ahaz's unbelief and its after effects in political destruction as well as in the religious destruction that followed is a picture of what happens when God's people today, the church today, turns to other places for its confidence when the church feels threatened, when the church feels as if it's being threatened by outside forces or by forces within it, the church feels threatened by what the media is saying, the church feels threatened by what the academy is saying, the church feels threatened by the movements of culture, the ethical values that are changing in our culture, the church feels threatened. Where does it look? Does it look to God or does it look to the culture itself? Does it look outside of its own bounds? Does it look to other alliances and dependencies in order to fortify itself of well, sense of well-being, to make it feel more important and influential in the world? Where will the church look? I mentioned last week the Church of Scotland allying with the Scottish Humanist Society in order to change school assembly prayers and to take out the prayer and the Christian bit and to make it a time of reflection. It's unbelievable that the Church of Scotland, a Presbyterian church, 
should unite with a humanist society in order to do that kind of thing. But it's the end result of a process in which step by step there has been cultural and theological surrender, right, left, and center. So many people, it's happening in churches, are reading the Bible now with a kind of situationalist approach to the Bible. That was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. And what brings that on is the pressure of a culture that mocks the church, that laughs at the church, that ridicules the church, whenever it says anything that is remotely churchy, churchly. The lesson of Isaiah's word to Ahaz is this. Unbelief brings destruction. It brings the opposite of what you hope it will bring. It won't make the people of God stronger. It won't make you any more influential in the world. The world will take all it can. It will turn and bite you in the end. But there's a second principle here. Look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. God's word to the faithless. Here this, here's the problem, isn't it? Because in chapter 8 now, the perspective of Isaiah is not simply to the king who's made this decision, which has its ramifications on the nation, because as goes the king, so goes the nation. But there are the other people who are observing this. There are the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And here in verses 1 to 4, God works through Isaiah to address these faithful, faithless people who are already beginning to demonstrate that hardness of heart which was to be an after-effect, you remember, of, of Isaiah's ministry. It was to be the outcome that God had promised him. You go out there, you be faithful, and you preach the Word of God to these people, and the result you're going to get is increased hardening of heart and faithlessness. Well, that was already beginning to be evident in the ordinary people. They're afraid of Syria and Ephraim as well. They're ignoring the prophet's message as well. Unbelief and this idea of having an alliance with some outside power is now entrenched in the minds of God's people. And so God sends Isaiah to these folks. Now this raises a question here. And the question is this, how does God speak to the world? And the answer of Scripture, of the Old and New Testament Scriptures, is this. He speaks through his servants, the prophets in the Old Testament, and he speaks through his servants, the apostles in the New Testament. And that's all he has to say. That's final. What he has said in the Bible, what he has in this book that's been revealed to us, that is his final word to humanity. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, and Jesus has authorized both the prophets and the apostles, and like a great towering figure, he puts his imprimatur, his agreement, approval upon the apostles and the prophets, and says, these are the word of God to you. And in the Old Testament, how does somebody like Isaiah find his way into the Bible? I mean, Isaiah's whole ministry is to slap around the Jews. I mean, that's his whole ministry. There he is in Jerusalem and Judea, and throughout his whole ministry, he's getting laid into them. He's really giving it to them. 
And now that really provokes people. People don't like to be taught like this. And Isaiah's wasn't really a popular message. So my question is, how did Isaiah end up in the Bible then? And the answer is fairly straightforward, you see. There was a formula. There was a formula laid down by Moses when he was looking into the future and he was telling the people of God then that God would send prophets to them. And and how could you tell a prophet that wasn't of God? Here's how you could tell a prophet that wasn't of God. Deuteronomy 18. If the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that God has not spoken. That is a word that God has not spoken. So here was the rule, the principle. Here was the formula. If a prophet's word came true, then it was true. If a prophet's word came true, then it was true. That was the principle. So back in chapter 7, Isaiah had come to Ahaz and said this, you don't believe God. God doesn't do this very often. He he actually hardly ever does it at all. In fact, he maybe never does this. But in your case, he's going to make an exception. Ahaz, he's going to give you a sign that his word is true. And you can choose what the sign is going to be. Anything. You ask anything, and we'll do it for you. There's a great deal. And you'll know that God is true. Some of you sitting here would love it if God gave you a sign that his word is true. You're struggling with it. You'd love that. I can tell you right now, he's not going to do that. Okay, But he did offer it to Ahaz. And he asked all spiritual about it and said, oh, well, you know, you couldn't possibly do that. Couldn't possibly ask, couldn't possibly test God in that way. Uh, no thanks, because he'd already made up his mind what he was going to do. And he didn't want any more evidence, any more proof, any more uh, reason to believe God than he already had. He resisted it. You remember Isaiah gives him a sign anyway. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign that he would not live to see fulfilled. It's a sign that was going to happen about 800 years later. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a child, and you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was a judgment on Ahaz. I'll give you a sign anyway. You won't live to see it fulfilled, but it's going to happen. God is going to intervene. He's going to raise up a perfect king in the house of David, who will reign forever. Now the big question is, who is ever going to believe Isaiah about something that's going to happen so far in the future? Nobody's ever going to be alive long enough to see whether it occurs. That was an issue. That was a question. Nowhere in the book of Isaiah do we get any hint that any of the people, any of the children born were the children he was talking about or the child he was talking about. There's just no, nowhere. The scholars are all over the place trying to find out which one it might be. And I think the reason they can't decide together that on any one particular figure is because that figure isn't there. He's in Matthew. That's where he is. But here, do you notice, here in chapter 8, the prophet gives to the whole people a sign that could be verified. In other words, You can't believe in something going to happen well in the far distant future, past your lifetime. But what about something that will happen two years from now? Maximum. So that's what God gets him to do. The Lord comes to the prophet and says, I want you to get and start an advertising campaign. I want you to get a great hoarding, a big sign. And uh, 
I want you to get some cutting instruments and I want you to write something on this sign. Here it is, massive sign. You're driving up the I-96 or whatever it is uh, towards Jerusalem, if they have one there. And you're coming up there and there on the hillside, there's this huge, enormous sign with this really cutting edge message. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What? What is that about? And uh, that's what he's told to do, isn't it? There in verse 1, write on it with common character. In other words, as clear as day. Let nobody know, let nobody know that, you know, they want, he wants everybody to know as clearly as he could possibly put it in big, bold letters. Maher Shalel Hashbaz. It was the Word of God. Secondly, he was to get some really important important people in the city. Get the mayor, uh, get the chief accountant of the city, get them together, get them to come down and look at the billboard, and then drop a legal document that says, there's the billboard, this is the word that was on the billboard, this was the message of the prophet. The prophet's message was that in two years, Assyria will have taken all of the treasures of Samaria in Israel and Damascus in Syria, stripped them bare, and expressed its total power. Two years. Take it down. Make it formal. Sign it. Put it in the mayor's office to be kept as a sign and as a record that Isaiah the prophet said it would happen, and it came true. Now, what we understand, you see, as you read the prophets, is that this, is a, that this was the way they operated. How do you establish your credentials in prophesying something 800, 3,000 years into the future? Well, what you have to do is you have to say something that applies to two years from now. Or 10 years from now. Or 100 years from now. Isaiah does all of that. So that incrementally, as people are reading Isaiah, first of all, they think, yeah, that came true, the two-year thing. Oh, oh that came true, the 10-year thing. Or oh, oh, this came true, the hundred-year thing. And so by the time they're putting together the Scriptures, you see Isaiah's already established himself as a prophet of God who speaks the truth. God's Word is true. The name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, and you're sitting there, children, thinking, I'm glad my parents didn't hear the sermon and get inspired to call me that. Uh, the name means, J.B. Phillips translates it, Quick pickings, easy prey. Spoil speeds, prey hastens. Before the child could say, Mommy or Daddy, the Assyrians will have looted Damascus and Samaria of her riches. And you notice, by the way, the prophet doesn't want us to confuse the birth of his son and the birth of Emmanuel. The Emmanuel sign was cryptic, given to the king. This sign is written in clear, large letters, and it's a public placard. The first child was to be born of a virgin. This child is to be born of the prophetess, that is, the prophet's wife, as in German. Uh, if somebody's a professor, their wife is called Frau Professor. The husband's a doctor, the, the woman is called Frau Doctor. In ancient Israel, if you were a prophet, your wife was called Frau Prophetess or something to that effect. So he, he's, she's to be born, he's to be born to the prophetess, the prophet's wife. 
The, the first child was to be named by its mother. This child is named by its father. The first child is called Emmanuel. This child is called Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. The prediction is made. The thing is drawn up. Nine months later, the child is born as a witness to the prophet's message, which will come true. Now, this is, this is important because what this sign is saying to the people is, if they had trusted in God and not feared, God would have intervened on their behalf. He had promised to do so. That was a well-meant sign that God was offering. But in fact, what had happened with Ahaz is happening with the people in spite of this prediction now, sealed and signed and registered and testable over time. In spite of this, God's people would sink deeper into unbelief. When our Lord was here to perform miracles, people didn't believe in him. When the apostles were ministering, they performed signs and wonders that were the mark of an apostle that made people take note that these people had been with Jesus. They were doing the same kind of things he did. They rejected it. The prophets, they said things that came true, and yet in the end they were rejected by their own people. Jesus says that. The word comes to the faithless. And the word to the faithless is God is the one who writes the script of history. God is the one who writes the script of history. God is the one who decrees whatsoever comes to pass. That's our fundamental presupposition. God ordains everything that comes to pass. We work from there and we look at all of life on the basis of that foundational thought. And that's the prophet's approach. But then there's a third thing in this section from verse 5 of chapter 8. Now the Lord speaks a word to, to the prophet himself, to, to him, for him. The Lord spoke to me again. And you notice that God is conscious of the kind of reaction that the prophet is getting. He's warned him that's the way it's going to be, but he comes to the prophet to encourage his heart. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the river, that's Euphrates, mighty and many, and the king of Assyria and all his glory. Here is God's challenge to his people. You live in Judah. The waters of Shiloh, that little stream that comes down towards the city of Jerusalem, the waters of Shiloh are quite insignificant. You, you couldn't even call it a river. It's like a, it's like a, we would call it a burn in Scotland. I don't know what the translation is. Uh, so you've just learned a new word. It's a small, very small little river, river, riverlet or whatever, stream. Stream. Stream? Okay. Uh, I, I do struggle with the language from time to time. And uh, also this Shiloh, you know, is, is not impressive. The Euphrates is, it's the real thing. It's a real, real river. <clears throat> you know, we have rivers in Scotland. And then you come over here and you see the Mississippi and you think, oh. <laughs> it's embarrassing, really. <laughs> uh, and and uh, 
you know, uh, uh, the, uh, oh, we have farms in Scotland. Then you visit Texas and you think, oh, different planet uh, altogether. Uh, so that, that was the contrast, really, that the prophet is painting here. He's saying there's the waters of Shiloh and there's the mighty Euphrates. And what impresses you is the mighty Euphrates. In other words, the power of Assyria, the power and the majesty and the glory, the glory of the king of Assyria. Here's Isaiah who's already seen the glory of the Lord of hosts, the Almighty the seam of whose garment envelops the temple, who is reigning in majesty. He's seen the Lord. And now here are these people, and they're so impressed with the glory of the king of Assyria. Little Shiloh speaks of weakness and uh, powerlessness. The glory of the king of Assyria speaks of majesty and might, and surely might is right. That's the lesson we get from the society we're in, isn't it? Might is right. The people who are in touch with the media and have all the media savvy and have all the fingers and the controls and influences of the media determine what we think, what comes into our homes, what goes on to the news, what we read in our newspapers and in our magazines. And their views and their ideas, they're the dominant ideas, of course, and because they're the dominant ideas, might is right. But might isn't always right. What God is saying by using these two pictures to the people is this. If you'd only trusted the waters of Shiloh, if only you trusted in the weakness, of, as it were, of Judah, you'd have been trusting in, actually, the Lord of hosts, the Almighty. But you couldn't see it. In the words of an old hymn, thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell when God is on the field, when he is most invisible. But these people didn't have that instinct that could tell that God was on the field. He was invisible to them. What they wanted was a visible power. And they looked to Assyria. But you notice Isaiah sees things in proper perspective. As he talks about Assyria, you know Assyria, you look to it, they're going to come down and it's going to be like the Euphrates, okay, mighty river, but the Euphrates in flood, spilling over its banks, passing through like a mighty current through Judah, almost, almost up to the neck, that is up to the city of Jerusalem, most likely, filling the breadth, look at verse 8, of your land. O Emmanuel. Now the prophet, you see, is taking us a step further. He's introduced us to this figure in the future, this right king who's coming, this king who, who brings the presence of God somehow to the people of God. And now he's putting some more content into the idea of the virgin-born child to come. Not only is he born of a virgin, not only is he Emmanuel, God with us, but the land, the land is his. 
He is the Lord of the land. Oh, the promised land, but the whole land, the whole earth. He is the Lord of all. Emmanuel is the Lord of the land. He is his owner, its Lord. And he, in the end of the day, is the object of, his, of Assyria's wrath. Assyria's wrath is directed not just at old Judah, but at the God behind Judah. The wrath of the nations against the Lord of the land. And this galvanizes, this picture of Emmanuel, this provokes the prophet to pray in verses 9 and 10. And to prophesy against these very powers. And he says, to these powers be broken, be shattered. He says to these great nations who are going to attack little Judah, and they're going to be They're going to be relatively successful, but not ultimately successful. He says to them, take counsel together. But it will come to nothing. Like the kings in Psalm 2, you remember all the kings of the nations. Take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bands asunder. Isaiah is saying, take counsel together. Make your plots and your plans and your schemes Draw up your strategies, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they will not work. You can speak a word. You can say you're going to do this, or you're going to do that, or you're going to do the next thing. You can say what you want, but your word will not stand. Will not stand. For, here's the punchline. For. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That's the Hebrew. Actually, when they were translating this, they should have done what's done in the New Testament. Speak a word, it will not stand for Emmanuel, brackets, meaning God is with us. Here's more information about Emmanuel. And it's going to be expanded further. And what he's saying to us is this. He's saying to the church today, the people are raging against the Lord and His Messiah. Whole people groups of false religion are mobilized against the Lord and against His Messiah, Jesus. Thought groups, secularists in our society, mobilizing, maybe not powers and so on, but their reasons and their arguments against the Lord and against His Messiah. And we feel feeble, we feel weak, we feel unable to take them into battle, as it were, in their terms. Well, we don't go into battle in their terms. We go into battle with Emmanuel. We we go into battle knowing this. God is with us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We go into battle knowing that whatever else is happening in the world, whatever however much the church is under assault, however much we may feel besieged by the world, Emmanuel, God is 
with us. Jesus sends us out into all the world. And he says, Lo, I am with you. I am with you always to the end of the age. Between now and the end of the age, there will be hard times. Between now and the end of the age, there will be tribulation. Between now and the end of the age, there will be a proliferation of false doctrines, false thinking, false reasoning. But Emmanuel, God, is with us. He is with us in flesh in Christ. He is with us by the Holy Spirit from Christ. He is with us. And in the end, everything they conspire together will come to nothing. Everything they boast about will not stand. Why? Because of Emmanuel. The virgin-born Son, the Lord of the land, the champion of His people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would please take Your Word and uh, write it in our hearts and give us a new affection for, a new desire for, an increasing love for the Lord Jesus, our Emmanuel. We thank you that he is God with us to be our rescuer, as Matthew puts it. He has come to be the Savior. We don't need any outside source. No other Savior will actually save. For all their pretensions, they will, they will bite us in the end, but Jesus is the Savior. He is the rescuer. He is the Redeemer. And we ask, Father, that you would bring him to make him closer to us, to be felt by us, Lord, to be consciously in our minds and hearts that everything we do as your people in the world and everything we think and how we think and how we act might be done for his glory. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.